It's hard to speculate what this space will look like five years down the line, when even next week is unpredictable. If you miss the news cycle for one day, it feels like you're out of the loop on emerging platforms, new ways content creators are expanding their brands, new games that are dominating Twitch and YouTube, so on and so forth. This field is evolving at a remarkable pace. But if there's anyone who can break down where the digital media slash influencer industry is heading, it's without question Brendan Gann. Brendan Gann is partner and chief social officer at the independent creative agency Mechanism. He is undoubtedly one of the most prominent voices and best known innovators of this space. In this episode, we discuss the early days of influencer marketing, the future of this industry, TikTok, of course, and much more. Enjoy. Alrighty. Well, just jumping into it. Um, so happy to have with us today, Brendan Gann. Um, I, as long as I could go about your background in this space and your credibility around influencers, emerging platforms, uh, everything of this nature, uh, I think it'd really just be best to pass it off to you and give a little bit of an introduction of what you've been doing for the past however many years in this field. Yeah, thank you. And I'm pumped to be here. Um, in terms of uh, years, it's it's funny. It's like added up. I, I started working in advertising about 15 years ago in San Francisco in the early days of social media and was really fortunate in that I was able to sell through some really early YouTuber influencer campaigns, um, you know, it, it, going back to 2006. And um uh, I remember I sold through my first deal with this brand, which doesn't even exist anymore. And um, Smosh, who, you know, is now even still a massive YouTube channel. And they crashed, uh, like their fans crashed the brand's website. And we got millions of views. And I was like, this is absolutely amazing. And um, I, I knew, like I knew instinctually, like it, that was more or less going to happen. But it was like so validating to to see an experience. And so from there, I, I left and I joined um, Mechanism and, uh, the, you know, it's an independent creative agency. And we just did a ton of influencer marketing and like viral video and branded content campaigns in that those like early days, like from 2006 to like 2012, 2013. And it was, it was amazing. Like, so got to build a bunch of great relationships with creators, do really innovative um you know exciting work in the space and then um after about six years at mechanism i joined full screen uh youtube mcn i was there for uh probably just shy of a year and then i left started my own agency um doing influencer marketing and content strategy for brands jump or, sorry then i sold that in, in a very roundabout way to mechanism um, and uh, now run the the uh, platforms and media team at Mechanism. So overseeing the paid paid side of things as well as all the social. So everything from influencer marketing to community management, uh, content creation, and um, you know social listening, tracking, reporting, y you name it, all things social. So it's it's been it's been fun, and I've been around the block, I guess, for a bit. Oh yeah, and I sit on the VidCon advisory board. Um, yeah, so that's my background, I guess. <laughs> Had to throw that in there, yeah. Uh, yeah. The VidCon Advisor Board. Um, you know, I, I'm so excited for us to dive into what the future of this space is going to look like. But, you know, as we talk about those early days, um, what is always on my mind is now I think any brand that is worth their salt is saying, you know, we have to have some semblance of an influencer strategy. But I imagine back 2006, back when Smosh was a thing. I mean, it's funny. My timeline is often, man, I bet in 2015, people were giving a lot of pushback to influencer marketing. So I can't imagine back in those years, um, I guess just how rough it must have been for many brands to wrap their head around this. 
And I even feel now, you know, there's not a lot of brands participating in TikTok. Um, so what is that conversation like with you? Are, are you noticing uh, uh, that evolution where now brands are really starting to get it? Or has it always sort of been a little bit disconnected? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in terms of now, it's it, it, I, I think the spectrum of understanding and investment is is very uh, wide. There's a very wide range, but there are more and more companies than ever who not just do influencer marketing, but have like dedicated influencer marketing teams um, and people that like their role is to own that aspect of things. And it's been built into the process, whereas um, in the early days, there there was no process. You didn't know who influencer marketing sat with. So like oftentimes, you know, we would sort of get ping ponged back around to a bunch of different teams. Like, oh, you gotta talk to PR. PR is like, well, I don't know. I think it's media. And the media is <laughs> like, no, nah, it's a brand call. And like um, now you don't need to necessarily navigate that side of things. But you do, it's interesting. It's like you traded one set of challenges for another. And now it's like there are so many other competitors in the space. Oftentimes, you know, um, they, you know, it, you know, influencer marketing and ownership of influencer marketing is defined. But maybe that uh, brand manager has their go-to agency or, or creators that they want to work with. And um, so now you're kind of just bumping up against competition more and more, which, you know, that's exciting and it's expected. Then on that, as we think about 2020, um, you know, what is the theme uh, of of uh, the influencer space that was seen this prior year? Um, you know, obviously it was a, a, a huge year for many reasons, uh, socially, culturally, uh, and everything happening in the world. But how is 2020 going to be remembered in the greater timeline of uh, the history of influencer partnerships? Oh, that's a good question. It's tough to pick one. I'll, I'll say a few and then narrow it down to probably the one that I think is like the big one. So I think live streaming went mainstream. Like we saw just such a huge adoption of that this year. Um, I think in the, the US it was like uh, a 20% increase over 2019, something in that neighborhood. Um, the other is sort of the integration of social and commerce. Um, and then third, sort of the uh, evolution of social and, and, and growing of, of niche communities and private communities in a way that we haven't necessarily experienced before. Um, but if I had to pick one, I would say sort of commerce is becoming social and social is becoming commerce. You know, we saw Facebook shops launch in May. Um, uh, YouTube is announced or, or it was publicized that YouTube is working on basically shopping integration with videos. Um, and then, of course, we saw Amazon kind of approach it from the other direction with um, adding live streaming to their homepage. And now people are like live streaming um, and, and selling products on the platform. And so I think that's probably the, the big one uh, if I had to pick one. Yeah. Um, and especially as we talk about 2020, what indicators is it going to have for the future of this space? Uh, I think to what you said, if, if there's one benefit to following your LinkedIn, it's that I'm, I'm so much more tapped into uh, shoppertainment than I ever would be otherwise. <laughs> Thank um, you. And I, I think that's something we have to dive into there, especially as so many of these US-based companies are trying to establish themselves with shoppertainment. So this is from an article that you wrote um, in China this year, uh, well, I guess this was 2020, generated $136 billion. Um, so I guess if you can speak a little bit about culturally um, how shoppertainment uh, is working in China and what implications that could have for it emerging in the U.S. Yeah, it, so it, it's it's certainly massive there. And I, I love that stat. I've some other sort of indicators in terms of like how large it is. I saw an eMarketer stat. It's like the third most commonly used, I think, um, third most commonly used e-commerce tactic. And, um, and you know, uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but Via is the live stream queen. And she uh, has like 40 million people that tune into her live streams each time. 
So uh, it, it is massive. And I think culturally it is probably a bit different. I feel like they're, they um, adopted, uh, they, they almost like skipped a generation of sort of like social in the sense that, you know, in just in the last maybe 10 years, everybody went online and not everybody kind of had that evolution from desktop. It all went mobile. And I think it's much more sophisticated in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think like, I think the biggest difference in a lot of ways might be the fact that there's almost maybe a little bit more um, cultural, like the cultural norms are a little bit unique in the US versus uh, China. And, and I could, I've heard other people say that, um, you know, so much of the Chinese uh, live streams are driven by, you know, hot girls, essentially, and that um, it, that it might not translate to the US because there's not as much sort of like sexual repression. But outside of that, I haven't heard of any good reasons why it wouldn't be as big because I mean, QVC was massive here, you know, and is and still is. So like, why wouldn't it all just translate online? Uh, in, in all honesty, I look at some influencers, some creators, and I go, I think a sizable portion of their audience might be coming from their, uh, they're very easy on the eyes, you know, yeah. uh, this, this definitely could contribute. Um, and, you know, I think when we think about the execution of how that's going to look, whether it's a, a creator that has grown their following on YouTube, and then they go, uh, they get some very tempting offer from Amazon to start doing Amazon live. Um, one thing that's so interesting in this space is thinking about, you know, it's an art to find the right way to connect a brand to an audience. It can't seem forced. It has to seem authentic. So how is that really going to play out as a part of uh, what we're going to see with U.S. shoppertainment? I think that's a good question. Um, in terms of like the partnerships, if you think about it, I, I like to like look at back at sort of like, well, what's worked it, it, you know, best in the past? And um the things that have worked really well are sort of like, like think about Nike and Jordan and that strategic partnership. You know, they were, they were, they became synonymous and the two helped build each other up. And I think uh, another one is like sort of like George Foreman grill, you know, it was like they, the, the, he became the brand in a lot of ways. And I think um, to sort of navigate the landscape going forward, brands will have to shift largely away from this sort of like pay to play, very transactional sort of way of working because creators who, uh, you know, creators are, are able to monetize their audiences directly in a way that they never have before. And they're able to make a really good living um, without brands and advertisements. And so to work with a brand, it's gotta be very compelling. And I think the probably the most compelling thing is sort of a, a really deep partnership and collaboration. No, that's that's a great point. And as a small tangent, I have to ask, uh, now that you've brought up the independent funding from audiences to creators, you know, I, I think I read something the other day where it was like the top Twitch earners, I think it was something like 80% of their income came from subscriptions. So when you look at Substack, you look at Patreon, uh, Twitch subscriptions, what do you think that really says about the future of the fan to creator relationship? Yeah, I think it's really exciting for the creators and for the fans. I mean, I think I'm not, we covered off on, on probably the big one, which is less of a reliance on ads. But I think what's great about all this is <clears throat> in this sort of direct monetization of the fans, it's like, these are not just revenue generating services and, and offerings, but also fan amplification at the same time, or like turning fans into evangelists, you know? Basically, as a creator, you're getting paid to have people go out and evangelize for you. You know, if, if, if you're selling merch, they're going out and they're publicizing it. If, if they're buying your, your um, your your content through like a Patreon or a Substack, they're paying to get more exposure to you. And that sort of like, 
I think in a lot of ways kicks off this flywheel effect that is only going to help them grow more and more. Yeah, no, it's it's so interesting to think about where this could lead. Um, and I guess on that, uh, is the future going to be, hey, I will have my YouTube content almost like a, uh, a free trial of sorts. And then really in order to get my full offerings, everyone's going to be coming over to funding me independently. Um, do you see this trend really taking off, say, in 2021? I definitely think so. Um, in talking to, you know, or some version of it, you know, obviously everyone's execution will, will vary. But um, I think the this generation of creators is like, sort of they're they're really learning from the mistakes of or not necessarily mistakes they're learning from the the previous generation of creators and they see you can monetize your audience through all these different avenues i i remember when i first started working in the space creators all they were focused on was getting brand dollars because they they assumed that was the only way to get paid and now this whole world has opened up um and, and and this mindset has really drastically changed. So I think we'll see um, it really start to continue to snowball. I mean, people people want their independence too, and and kind of being reliant upon brand dollars, um, you know, to a certain extent hinders that. And uh, to something else you just alluded to there, you know, the CEO mindset being adopted um, by creators where. You know, to me and, and your introduction to you and your background, when you talk about Smosh, I always think of Smosh as a remarkable anomaly of, wow, this is a channel that started in 2006 and is still relevant today. You know, find most creators who are popular in 2012 and see if they have any audience today. And the answer is more often than not, no. But it really does seem like in this past year, uh, creators are understanding diversifying their influence and, you know, finding new ways to really build out a brand uh, in an enterprise. Um, so I guess if you could speak on that, because I, I imagine anything I've witnessed on this, you've already witnessed tenfold with uh, creators you've interacted with. Um, specifically, how do you sort of maintain um, relevance in, in, in uh, over a long period of time? Yeah, both how do you maintain relevance and also what's really happening where so many more creators are able to have a uh, much more strategic plan mm. for their longevity uh, of being an influencer? Yeah, I, I don't know if I've got a, the best answer for that other than the 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 fact that um well you know i think there's so many more resources i think is is a big part of it like you can go out right now and and monetize through all these avenues by you know signing up to patreon or or whatever you know platform creating creating an account and then pushing it out those resources weren't available just a few few you know years ago <clears throat> so i think that's an element of it I also think to a certain extent, you know, there's generational shifts. I, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but the number of people that want to work for themselves uh, has has shifted drastically. I mean, like just looking at the culture, like entrepreneurship, I think is really celebrated. Um, and, and at the same time, there's an understanding or at least a, a, a perception that working for, for brands or working within large companies is not the safe, secure thing that that sort of maybe previous generations did. And, and I know that's not necessarily exactly the same thing, but I think at the end of the day, people um, embrace sort of like uh, 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 freedom and, and navigating their own direction and embracing the risks at the same time in a way that like previous generations just maybe did not. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, I guess that's what we're going to be seeing with the TikTokers because, you know, one thing that's really struck me, and I'm sure you've seen it, is a lot of these TikTok creators, uh, they're making strategic investments. They are uh, really thinking about having a diverse portfolio where, you know, it, it seems to really be moving away from the, I'm just going to flex all of my wealth endlessly 
uh, style that maybe we've just seen a few years back. Oh yeah, I think I think that is so cool. <clears throat> the the and then like there's a whole crop of of influencers getting involved in as like angel investors and advisors on companies and like like Mr. Beast just did it with the um gosh I'm gonna I forget the name of it but that that gaming handheld gaming company. Oh yeah. I think it's Bone, I think it was yeah. something like that. Yeah. I mean that's just I think I think it's brilliant. It makes sense. Um, I was actually uh, in a clubhouse the other night, <clears throat> and, uh, and and Mr. Beast had jumped on, and a bunch of the night media folks, his management team, were on there, and somebody had asked if, you know, they thought a creator would IPO soon, and and uh, Ezra, um, who's uh, I think he's the president of Night Media, um, uh, one of the execs, you know, C-suite execs at Night Media. He said that uh, he's like that. That's a conversation that like three years ago people would have thought was like, like ridiculous. But now it's like, you know, it's not going to happen right now. But it's like you can kind of see the path to that. And I think, you know, these creators they can build brands and and grow businesses, and um, and and as a result, they'll be able to build some incredible companies. Yeah. And um, first off, I'm I'm deeply envious that you are in a clubhouse with Mr. Beast. Uh, I was sounds... so nervous. It was so weird. <laughs> I, I got pulled up for a little part of it, and like I was I was seriously like nervous because there were like 700 people in there. <laughs> oh my god! Wow. Um, well, God, I I guess I don't want to do uh, too much of a tangent here, but what do you think about Clubhouse? Um, and I think what's so striking about that too is you know, maybe this is how Mr. Beast, say, has stayed so relevant is there's a new platform and he's not waiting a second until he gets on it and starts, you know, really diving in, figuring out the mechanics, trying to maybe game the algorithm a little bit. Um, how important is that with creators? Um, and who knows, maybe was that a part of his strategy with being on Clubhouse or maybe it was far more casual? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't speak to him specifically, but, um, and, and his, if, if that's a goal or an avenue for him, but my take on Clubhouse is, I mean, I think it's, it's filling a void right now that, that needs to be filled. And that is sort of like this sense of, of community and just hanging out and talking to people that isn't so structured like a zoom call and you know we can't meet up in person and so i think it's really it, they they launched it at the perfect moment in time now i after the pandemic is all over will they be able to stay relevant i think they've got a decent shot and i think largely because of the community that they've built you know i i think of it a little bit is a little bit analogous to the early days of Twitter, which was largely, you know, the the, the VC Silicon Valley set um, and a lot of tech reporters and stuff, which uh, a lot of people were really intrigued by. People wanted to 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 see what they were talking about and like be a part of those conversations. And then so it you know it expanded a little bit and a little bit, and then celebrities were interested, and then it expanded from there. And and to, I I think they've sort of um, followed a, a little bit of that same playbook. Obviously, they they were much more strategic in sort of the um, invite only rollout, but that laid that foundation to make sure that they always had these sort of um, trendsetters, which led to FOMO and then everyone wanting to get in. Yeah, completely. Um, and to what you're talking about there, that. That goes to something else that you've written about um, that I thought was so brilliant um, because it was a whole area I haven't even really thought of is, you know, say if if podcasting had its huge boom where everyone became aware of how big this is going to be a few years ago, um, maybe the next iteration of finding communities through audio is in this dark social that you've talked about so much in depth. Um, and that is another thought that I was really curious to get uh, your opinion on is, is 2021, is it going to be defined by that dark social, by those communities? 
I definitely think so. I mean, <clears throat> like, let's just look at the last week and a half. So much has changed. Um, you know, uh, uh, Trump got banned from, you know, Facebook and Twitter I and mean, all the social platforms. And that led um, a lot of people to then essentially boycott uh, those platforms and go off into their own, you know, niche platforms parlor and, and gab like exploded in popularity and then those all got pulled down and then immediately following all these private messenger services exploded in popularity and like uh telegram and signal have been number one and number two in the app store for the last uh i think five or so days um so this is just sort of like one data point but um you know uh uh Earlier this year, we, or I guess it's 2021 now. In 2020, uh, we saw that um, Discord shared that there were 140 million Discord users. That platform has seen this meteoric rise. Um, in early September, I saw a stat, they were getting 800,000 installs a day, sort of riding the wave of Among Us. Um, and then parallel to all this, so like, um, we're seeing these SMS startups emerge, you know, like community and, and these other platforms where you're owning a direct line of communication to fans. And, and so I, I think there's this fragmentation that is happening. And I think this, um, this desire for a greater sense of like intimacy and, and community um, that, that people really want. And, and a lot of different factors are pushing them that direction, but that's, that's sort of the core of it. God, it's so interesting. And yeah, maybe it's just kickstarted by um, quarantine and people longing for that real connection, but it's really just starting us into that whole new universe of people are going to be far more connected. We're talking over Skype right now and you know, how do you evolve that to have much more open communities that do resemble almost like your coffee shop or your bookstore and places to meet with people of similar interests? A hundred percent. And then on that, you know, I, I know you've written about um, brands having to find their way into dark social. Um, and, you know, the only issue I was thinking about in my head was, would that and I really do pose it as a question because I don't know, but would it seem intrusive if a brand does it? Um, do you think that brands are going to have to find really careful and well thought out ways to get themselves into the dark social world? A hundred percent. I think you have to tread carefully. I mean, <clears throat> in a lot of these situations, well, if you think about it, like the, the, these platforms like a Discord or even, you know, SMS and your text messages, these are places generally reserved for that, that community, your personal relationships. And so it is largely, not entirely, but largely uncharted territory. But I think ultimately sort of the same principles apply in, in dark social as they do anywhere else. It's like, um, if, if the brand is adding value and providing a compelling reason um, for, for, you know, uh, their consumers to engage, that's great. If you're just going in there and you're spamming, be like, buy our stuff, that's bad. And that's bad and good regardless of, of where you are. You know, the brands that do so well on on social or TV or really any platform are those that provide something of value. I mean, that can be as stupid as or as simple as like, it's funny. Um, or, you know, maybe it's like exclusives and that sort of thing. But really, um, you know, in these early days of it all, the brands that are not uh, really strategic about it are going to be probably eaten alive, <laughs> I would think. Completely. Yeah. I, I mean, I think even now you've seen some brands try to find Twitch out and try to figure out how to do that. And there have been some horror stories of mm -hmm. <laughs> just a real misunderstanding of the community. Well, that's, um, oh, sorry, yeah. not to derail things, but yeah, I think that's a great point. Like that is a community, I mean, less so now, but like, um, you know, where so many people felt like there was this sense of ownership, like this is our place. And like, you know, if, if that happened on a platform of millions of people, 
where like to a certain extent you can be like, well, why do you think you have this sense of ownership? What do you think it's going to be like when it's like a community of like, you know, a few hundred or a couple thousand? It's like, you got to be so careful with this stuff. Yeah, um, exactly. Because people don't know what they're getting into with some of these communities. They can be vicious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder then in your day to day, taking it even away from the future and just into present day, um, when you're helping brands figure out and really hold their hand through the process of activating on a new platform or finding influencers that can align with their message, what are the the key principles and really the core philosophy that you always go back to in advising these brands? Yeah. So, so in terms of working with the influencers, I, I think there's a few things and, and, <clears throat> there's sort of the, the the philosophical, which I think is you need to approach it through the lens of like, if there's a Venn diagram, there's like, um, there's, there's what the audience needs, then there's what sort of like gets the creator excited and what they need to have a good time. And then uh, 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 thirdly, what the brand needs and the message they need to get out there. And, you know, oftentimes, and I, I understand the rationale, people are like, you just got to hand everything over to the creator and like trust them. And like, there's certainly an element of truth to that. But at the end of the day, there there do need to be some sort of parameters put in place because the brand has a job to do. Um, and so when is really when that, that sort of like overlap of the three, and it's, it's always this delicate balance where you're trying to make sure you... Um, are threading that needle. Um, and then I guess in terms of sort of the, the tactical way um, we approach things is, you know, every every campaign is different, but in terms of sort of like the identification process, you know, once, once we've sort of got a strategy in place, we align on sort of the parameters of it and, and take into account the quantitative and the qualitative like we need to watch these channels and know these creators. Otherwise um, it's, it's a waste of everyone's time because there's a big difference between what the numbers show you and sort of like what a creator is talking about. And then we'd love to, and we always get on the phone with creators and like, be like, like, is this something you're passionate about? And kind of try and get that read on them from um, kind of like, what are they jazzed about? And then when we land on the people who we feel are like really excited about it, as well as kind of hit whatever criteria we've got in place from a, a quantitative standpoint, we like to onboard them, um, you know, in non-pandemic times, we like to do it in person. Now that's not really a possibility, but the goal is to really take it beyond the brief. You know, you don't want them just rattling off points, bullet points that, that does nobody any good. Like you want them to have a, an understanding so that you can send them off into the world and they can understand the brand innately and bring it to life through a deeper understanding than just sort of regurgitating some, some facts or statements. And so that's sort of broadly how we approach things. Well then on that, Brendan, you know, I I imagine it is uh, a really careful act of how do you make things connect with the creator authentically versus how do you really fit the messaging of the brand and how they want to appeal to consumers? And, you know, what I love about what you just said there is uh, the easy answer is always just give it to the creative, let the creator do everything. Uh, And that does not account for the intricacies that really need to be applied uh, given the brand's KPIs. So, when you're talking with an influencer, I guess, what is that vetting process like to figure out from the very early stages, whether it's it's really going to materialize in a way that all parties are going to be happy with? That's a good question. And I think, <clears throat> you know, uh, it in terms of being able to avoid these tough conversations, you know, there's inevitably um, a number of them you have. Um, however the single most important thing you can do is exactly what you said is, is, is in that upfront process to avoid it. And, and honestly, the thing that, the, the thing that really helps us got like helps guide us in terms of making decisions is, um, 
when you jump on the phone, are they like, do they immediately start being like, oh, I love this. Uh, I've got this idea and that idea. And like, this will be really fun to do. We should do it this way. And they're really kind of riffing with you. Um, Cause that's not like a calculated response necessarily. It's like more of like a, it, it, it's an expression of their sentiment and, and their passion for the brand without basically saying, I'm, I want to do this deal. Um, the, the other thing is sort of, um, you know, are they making time, you know, for, for the call? Like, you know, before you sign a deal, I like creators, they, they, they're fielding a lot of requests. Um, and so they do need to be very careful about what deals, uh, or what calls they take on before they sign anything. But if somebody's really impossible to sort of pinpoint and is flaky, oftentimes that's a sign that they've got a lot on their plate which is totally valid, but, um, you know, it's, it's, you don't need to force it. It's like, if you're excited about it and you have the time, let's make something happen. You know, if, if you're flaky, missing calls and, and kind of are just maybe asking what the dollar amount is and, and not really having other questions, I think those are sort of probably the biggest indicators of this is going to be a good relationship or this isn't. Brennan, when you think about all of the creators you've worked with over the years, um, and again, this is not to discount all of the incredible creators you've worked with, but is there a particular story or creator that you think back to of, man, this creator was the most fun uh, or maybe the most successful or the most enriching collaboration you've you've ever uh, dived into? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh... There's two that come to mind and they're kind of intertwined. Um, one is working with uh, Charles Trippi, who he set the Guinness Book of World Records for daily consecutive vlogs. Um, and he was like really early days YouTuber, really early days vlogger. And he and I just like instantly sort of became friends. Like we, I think we did our first deal with him in 2007. And you know, we had, we had a shared interest in sort of like everything from the music, like we're both like into punk and, uh, you know, he's a bassist in a punk band and like, um, had a, a real passion and sort of like same vision and philosophy of, 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 um, YouTube and social. And we became friends and he's, he's to this day, you know, I, I consider him a dear, dear friend. And, um, I love talking to him. Um, so it's less of a business one, but but it, it's been very fruitful. And uh, the, uh, the other one, um, Charles introduced me to Phil DeFranco. And I did, um, I think it was like maybe Phil's first deal, maybe second deal or something. Um, and obviously Phil is a powerhouse and, and, and really, I mean, I think a, a media juggernaut. And um I, I feel very fortunate that I was able to become friends with him. And I love just, you know, uh, hearing his thoughts on things and his philosophies and seeing his incredible growth. And I, I got to go to, you know, both Phil and Charles's weddings and, um, you know, develop relationships with them. And I think um, that's been really personally meaningful for me. So it's, it's not necessarily like a business one or an innovation one, but, uh, uh, a personal one for sure. God, that's great. Um, yeah, two powerhouses. Um, and it's funny as we talk about creators and their longevity, I think the other one that always comes to my mind, maybe alongside Smosh would be Philip DeFranco. Uh, so God, what a great connection to have. Yeah, his career has been really incredible to watch. I mean, I think he's been kind of at the bleeding edge of of of, of so many aspects of this industry, and he's just he's he's got a vision, and he he understands the 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 strategy, the business, and the creative in a way that I I don't know if there's anybody else that quite gets that trifecta the way that he does. Yeah, got it. And maybe he was the the precedent of the future of creators assessing their brands. But um, 
you know, outside of that, as we talk about those trifectas, understanding content and understanding uh, how to make meaningful partnerships for your business. Um, I know for you, uh, this past year, uh, you've gone right into TikTok. Uh, I follow your account. It's fantastic. Um, I get really quick, uh, very to the point uh, executions of, hey, this is how you expand. This is how you uh, further diversify your influence. Um, so what has the experience been like for you now that you are, I guess, a creator after being on the business side uh, for so many years? Oh, man, it's been awesome. Um, it's been really rewarding and really stressful all at the same time. I think there's there's a bunch of reasons why I decided to do a TikTok, but I think one of the ones, like looking back on it, that maybe pushed me to do it was I kind of felt a little bit like, like for so long, I'm not, for so long, I felt like I'm really deep into the creator community. And like, I know, I, 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 you know, if I don't know someone, I know exactly who to go to, to get a hold of them. And I just felt like I had my head wrapped around it. And, and I'm not saying like, I, I did never have thought like I knew everything there is to know, if anything, I would say the opposite, but I felt like I had like a, a, like some sort of like a map of it. And then, you know, we did a number of TikTok campaigns that were wildly successful and that was really fun, but I realized I don't, I'm not able to like pick up the phone and call TikTokers the way I am YouTubers. And, and I, that really, I, I think got under my skin a little bit. <laughs> And so I, 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 it pushed me to sort of be like, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to understand this then. And, uh, so I started creating content and it's been awesome. Like I've built so many great relationships and met a lot of awesome creators and, and, you know, made a lot of friends and have learned so much. Um, so that has been very rewarding personally. Um, I would say the, the, it's not all fun and games though. I mean, it is exhausting and I cannot imagine what the creators must feel because there there's so many like little things where you're constantly like, I'm, I'm, I didn't get back to that person that, you know, like as soon as, you know, I've got 50,000 um, TikTok followers. It's not a lot in the grand scheme of things. And I like to, to communicate with anyone that reaches out to me, but uh, most of the time I, I, I can't even keep up with it. Cause like, you know, I got a job, I got a life and like it, it I, I'm burning the candle at both ends most of the time, but it overall has been great. Wow. Um, yeah, God. And you, you talk about the exhausting element to it. Uh, you know, I think not least of which is if it's going to be TikTok. Um, you have to be exceptionally high energy. Um, is that, uh, how has that been for you having to match the general energy and enthusiasm that is kind of the standard on the platform? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. Just getting in front of the <laughs> camera was really hard. My fiance loves to make fun of me. I wouldn't let her be in the room when I was filming. Um, and uh, I mean, the first, I don't know, the first several were just, were just awful. And, um, and then eventually I got better and I like messed around with the editing, but like, I can tell you, like, I would do so many takes of a thing because I just like not get the words out. I couldn't get my energy up. It's really hard. And so now I, I, I kind of, um, will do like one sentence at a time and then edit it because I, it's it's not my nature to be really like boisterous and like loud and you you do have to dial up the energy um to to sort of stand out and and like I I'm really constantly fighting that. Wow, yeah, it's it's so funny to hear this uh very analytical approach to how you kind of game the algorithm on a TikTok, but um, you know, I'm, I'm so curious because I, I think this speaks for me and this speaks for what must be 99.5% of this industry 
is you work with creators. You can get on the phone with a creator. You can read all the articles about uh, new changes that YouTube is making and the backend analytics. But up until you really put yourself out there, you just don't know what it's like. So how has your experience as a creator uh, really helped enrich the business side of your work? Um, that's interesting. Yeah, so I, I think there's maybe two aspects of that. One is sort of the, um, I, I, I think the whole process has made me um, a much better marketer in so many ways because it's like kind of trial by fire, um, which I can't point to anything tangible that that's helped, but I know it's, it's, it's helped. The other aspect is, I mean, it's opened up a lot of doors. I mean, I've met like TikTok specifically, I'm connected with a few CMOs. It gave me access to a lot of creators. So, um, you know, um, working with them, it opened, and then not just TikTok, but, you know, you mentioned LinkedIn, my posting on LinkedIn every single day, um, has led to a lot of other great relationships that led to strategic partnerships and um, investments and, um, you know, new business opportunities. So it's it's been all over the map and really um, uh, opened up a lot of doors. Wow. Yeah, no, that is fantastic. Just putting yourself out there and it's hard, you know, people don't want to admit it, but like, Putting yourself, have have you faced? I, I hope not. Um, but have you faced any of the uh, the haters that many creators just become accustomed to as you know a part of the comment section? A little bit here and there, um, and uh, I I don't handle it well. Like um, my fiance, like you know, makes fun of me on that one too because I'm like like I'll just like be fuming be like oh this is what this person said like <laughs> and it's like she's like they don't like what do you even care like like they don't matter and um so it gets under my skin i gotta get better about that to be honest but um i i think it's been good though because it does make you like even without the negative reactions it's very um unnerving to put yourself forth like that and and you immediately as a result of that, I think um, you you kind of just grow a thicker skin to a certain extent, and I think that's been it's it's been really good. And I think to a certain extent too, just giving myself permission to sort of, I think if anybody's interested in like doing their own content creation publicly, embracing the fact that like you're gonna suck, like and like if you're like right. if you go into that in the beginning, you're like. I, I'm going to be terrible and like people will tell me I'm terrible and I know I'm going to be terrible. And if you just like kind of almost write that off, it's like, well, that's phase one. Then, then you, it's like when you're terrible, you're like, okay, this is part of the process. Like, and, and it makes it much more palatable. It's that mindset, you know, shift in mindset. Like um, I actually referencing Mr. Beast again, I think he said, or maybe it was Roberto Blake. One of them said, you have to make a hundred bad YouTube videos to get to one good one. And, and approaching things through that sort of lens, I think is really um, liberating. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as you just mentioned, Mr. Beast, I was just thinking in my head, um, and I'm not sure if this was parallel to your own uh, TikTok endeavors, but I know I had seen a post by you about, you know, uh, the amount of videos Mr. Beast had put prior to hitting like 100,000 subscribers or same thing with another YouTuber, ZHC. So that must have been a very profound experience to go from talking about this endlessly to now experiencing it firsthand. Like, all right, wow, it is an evolution. You have to thicken your skin. You have to understand how to game the algorithms, so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. I mean, and I think it was good, like, me doing research on on them and writing blog posts about them before because yeah I mean, zhc he went a year and did 50 videos and by the end of the year he had a thousand subscribers and like now he's like one of the fastest growing channels um you know billions of views and is just huge and it's like that that's another element it's sort of this like compound interest with all this stuff 
you it doesn't happen with like a single video it's it's just making these like little one percent improvements here and there and just letting it add up and and to get compound gains you you've kind of got to go through that really like long period where it's just tiny 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 incremental growth and then it'll just boom you know start doubling and um it's 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 a it's it's an interesting experience to sort of go through personally yeah and 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 no time it'll be uh brendan d'amelio uh <laughs> top of the charts yeah. And, um, and that's to say too like i only have fifty thousand subscribers i'm super grateful for that but I, I don't think i know you know i don't know how it all works obviously and like you know i want to communicate like i don't think i'm like some expert with all this stuff you know sure you're you're humble but i mean fifty thousand subscribers uh you know i go to the business hashtags on uh on tiktok and uh the average is is significantly less than that but um, Brendan, as a, as a final topic here, going right back to just predictions, um, TikTok, obviously that is the platform that I think anybody would say, you know, it dominated the news cycle in 2020. And it's so interesting because I feel like over the past few years for a long time, it was, all right, YouTube is for your long form content. Instagram is for your photos. I'm obviously speaking if you are uh, an influencer, um, but now it's Twitch, now it's TikTok. Um, the landscape is just shifting so dramatically. So in terms of platforms, do you have any predictions uh, for what we're going to see amongst the creator community? Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, I think, um, so I think going back to that idea of private communities, I think that's going to be it. I, I think, I don't think there will be one single winner necessarily i think discord sort of jumps out as probably the big one but i i think that there's going to be a number of others i mean obviously only fans and 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 patreon are, are doing quite well but i i think there will be you know dozens of other players and depending on sort of the use cases and functionality i think there will be a number of sort of private community platforms that um that are going to be sort of like the the the, the powering the these communities for creators. Yeah, 100%. And, and I, I say to everyone um, to go to your website um, because you have, you know, I, I don't know how you do it. I, I hypothesize that you just don't sleep, but... That's um, pretty you close. Know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm glad. But um, yeah, you, you have many great articles uh, about the future of this industry with Shoppertainment, with Dark Social. Um, and again, Brendan, I, I want to say a huge thank you for coming on and uh, really elaborating on these topics. Oh, yeah. No, are you kidding me? Thank you for having me. This is really fun. And I'm super grateful for you to, to, you know, have me on here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tube Circuit. Please subscribe for more deep dives in interviews on the direction of digital media. Oh, oh, oh.